Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Well, you should have uh, some notes in front of you on uh, free to serve from Romans chapter 6. That's where we'll spend our last hour together. We've talked about what it means to be saved by grace. We've talked about what it means to stay saved by grace. We've talked about how there's a lot of confusion around that message today. And now we're going to talk about what it means to live by grace and to serve God as a response to grace. So we're moving from, theologically speaking, justification into sanctification and uh, from salvation into the Christian life. And we look at uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23 for this. And when the Soviet Union finally collapsed, the whole former Soviet Union found themselves with freedom, but with a sad lack of morality. And so as soon as they were free, Prostitution rose, um, theft rose, uh, bribery, materialism, drugs, all the things that characterize a lot of the free countries of the West just flooded into the Soviet Union because they didn't have the moral base for one thing. But the other thing was that they just weren't, they didn't know how to live as a free people. They were used, and I've been to the Soviet Union, I've talked with them about this, but they were used to being told what to do how to think and how to behave. And anybody got out of line was immediately slapped back into line. Under freedom, nobody was telling them what to do. And some people even longed for the old communist system because it was more of a predictable system for them. It just shows that living under grace can be scary. And many of the Russians and the former Soviets were a bit scared about living in this new system. Um, Someone in an op-ed piece in Fort Worth Star-Telegram called Russia the world's leading kleptocracy. Everybody was stealing from everybody. And uh, they have what they call the mafia over there, which is the group of government leaders who ended up with all the property. So you have very, very poor people and some very, very wealthy billionaire leaders in that country. But that's what freedom does. Is it, 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 uh, a freedom that's not governed by something tends to indulge and in slip into license and that's exactly what happened but that's one of the risks of grace we've said that grace sets you free but one of the risks of freedom and therefore the risk of grace is that we can go a wrong direction grace is sometimes risky freedom is risky if you've ever been the parent of a teenager you know that of which i speak the art of parenting a teenager is knowing the art of parenting, period, is knowing how much freedom to give your child, right? When they're young, you're going to wear this to school, you're going to eat this for breakfast, and this for dinner. When they get older, they begin to make decisions for themselves. You give them more freedom. You give them more freedom to say no to your broccoli. You give them more freedom to, to eat out and, and make decisions for themselves. And you can't protect them all the time. You can't control them all the time. That's the art of parenting. But it's risky, and it's a bit scary when you're 
teenager is making decisions about things that could affect him or her the rest of his life or her life, right? In the same way, God sets us free, but to many that freedom is scary. And it comes with objections. Uh, can I do anything that I want to? Exactly how am I supposed to live under grace? You say once saved, always saved. So I can do anything that I want to and still be saved would come the objection. Um, and so those who preach the grace message are often accused of things like antinomianism, which means that antinomianism is the view that there are no laws. You don't have to keep any laws, any rules. Well, am I antinomian? Yes, in the sense that we're not under the Old Testament law. But no, because the New Testament says that there are other laws, the law of love, the law of Christ. And in fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament at some place or other. So there are rules and laws for the Christian life, but they're not laws by which we are saved. So antinomianism is a misnomer altogether. Oh, but if you preach once saved, always saved, are you then preaching license that I can do whatever I want to? No, we're not preaching license at all. And that's really kind of at the heart of what our passage is today. But let me just remind you that preaching grace is risky. And unless you're getting those kind of objections, you're probably not preaching the gospel clearly. You know you're preaching the gospel clearly when people say are saying things like, oh, you mean you're teaching all you have to do is believe? Or you're teaching that uh, uh, we're not under the law? Well, then you know, or if somebody says, I can do anything that I want, then you know you're preaching the gospel right. They're not necessarily right in their assumptions, but you're preaching the gospel right because Paul got the same objections and he covers them in Romans chapter 6. Paul taught salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He taught that the the gospel of Jesus Christ set us free from the law and placed us under a system of grace. And he was accused of teaching license. And so we see the objection in chapter 6. The objection in verse 15 What then shall we say because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Well, that harkens back to what Paul said in verse 14. That's the context. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. No longer are we under the obligations of the Old Testament law, but Jesus has fulfilled those obligations and placed us under his system of grace, which means we get everything not on the basis of our performance, but his performance. So the objection then is, if we're not under the law, does that mean we have no controls? That we, that grace therefore encourages us to, or invites us to sin? It's very similar to the objection in verse one of chapter six. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, does grace encourage us to sin? And then in verse 15, does grace invite us to sin? In both cases, Paul says, absolutely not. In fact, in the original language, it's a strong negative. It's a double negative. Absolutely not, is what he says in answer to both objections. And in in answering the first half of chapter 6, the first objection, he argues that we have a new master. You're not under the old master of sin. You have a new master in Jesus Christ, and therefore you need to 
identify with him in his, because you are united with him in his death and resurrection, consider yourself, he says in verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Make a calculated decision that you are now under a new master, like changing citizenship. Forget about your old citizenship and its demands. You're now a citizen of a new country. You better learn how to serve and operate under that new system. So that's what he says in the first half of chapter 6. In the second half of chapter 6, he's answering the objection, does it then invite sin? Because if we're under grace and not under law, isn't that just inviting people to do what they want? A commentator named Vincent said, quote, there is a subtle poison which insinuates itself into the heart of even the best Christian. It is the temptation to say, let us sin, not that grace may abound, but because it abounds. A subtle temptation to say, let's sin, not because, uh, let us sin, not that grace may abound, but because it abounds. And so Paul anticipates that very same objection. Are we free to be lawless? No way, he says. But you notice that Paul denies the conclusion not the premise. Are we free, not under the law, under grace? Paul's agreeing with that. Can we do whatever we want? Paul says no. He agrees with the premise, but he denies the conclusion. And what he's saying in 16 through 23 is that living under grace means serving the new master. First half of chapter 6, identify with the new master. You're united with him. Make that decision to identify with him. Now he talks about serving a new master. And the scriptures teach that we can only serve one master. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? When you make a decision to serve a master, you have to obey that master is simply what he's saying. We all got to serve somebody. You're either serving yourself or you're serving someone else, so you're serving God. We all got to serve somebody. And what did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. Remember what he said? You, no man can serve two masters. You'll love one, hate the other, or vice versa. Jesus was saying you can't serve money as your master and serve God. So we all have to serve somebody. Another commentator said the first duty of every soul is defined not its freedom, but its master. You see, it's not, woohoo, I've been set free, I can do anything I want. It's, no, what am I here for? What, who do I serve? Who's the right master to serve? That should be the mentality of freedom. At the beginning of uh, the days before the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee was caught in a very uncomfortable position because the Northern Army had re- asked him and invited him to be the commanding general of the northern troops. But he was a southerner by birth. He was a Virginian. And he decided to be loyal to the south. And instead, he took up the assignment to be the general of the southern troops, the south. And in doing so, what he did was he was committing himself then to serve the south and to fight his friends even in the north because he made a calculated decision to serve a a certain cause or person. Same thing when we 
when we take on a new job, for example, or your old job, when you take on a job, there's an understanding that you come to with an employer. Sometimes it's in a written contract. Sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's a handshake. But you're agreeing to work and do a certain task for a certain time, and he's agreeing to pay you a certain amount to do that. You don't have to take the job. Nobody's going to break your arm. But when you make the decision to take the job, you're entering in to that agreement to serve your master, your boss, on his terms. So what he's saying here is that we can only serve one master. And in that calculated decision to serve God, we are therefore obligated to do what he wants us to do. If, however, we choose to serve sin, verse 16 says, it leads to death. And if we obey God, it leads to righteousness. I think it's very important here to understand what he means by death. Remember in Bible study, it's always context, context, context. What is the context of chapter 6? Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Well, if you follow the book of Romans, and it's it's in order, it's, there's a sequential argument. First three chapters talk about sin. And then in chapters 3 through 5, he talks about, parts, the last part of chapter 3 through 5, he talks about justification or salvation. Justification. And then in chapter 6 through 8, he's talking about sanctification, the Christian life. And then he goes on in chapter 8 to talk about security. And then he goes on to talk about service, you see? So Romans is a progression, and in this progression, in chapter 6, he's speaking to Christians. Those who have been united with Christ and have him as a new master, okay? So what is he talking about then? If we sin, it leads to death in, in verse 16. He's not talking about hell. Because he's talking to Christians. And we've already established through our Bible study that a Christian can't lose his salvation. He's probably not talking about, although some would believe he's talking about physical death, I don't think he's talking about physical death here either. I think what he's talking about is the deadly effects of sin. The deadness that comes from sin. When we stop and think about it, death is not the cessation of life or the cessation of being. It's a separation. I think we're much clearer in our Bible interpretation when we understand that death is a separation, a separation from life, from God, who is life. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 17, when God told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of the tree, the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Well, they ate of the fruit. Did they drop dead? No. But did they die? Yes, in that they were separated from God. When we as Christians, what Paul is saying, when we as Christians choose to sin and serve our old master, we're going to experience the old experience of being separated from God. And so I gave you an example earlier of someone who was making very conscious choices to break up, break up a marriage and live in that sin, and she's miserable. Just like an unsafe person would be miserable in their sin. She's experiencing the guilt of their sin, the separation from God, the isolation, the feeling of their joy is gone. Depression has come. That's the effects of sin. It leads to death. But if we obey God, it says it leads to righteousness or a righteous life, a life that is rewarded, a life that is according to God's standard. Righteousness that leads to holiness, which is sanctification. So we can serve only one master, but we serve a new master. Verses 17 through 18. He says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
Now he's expressing his thanks to the Roman church, those believers, because he says, though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that teaching which was delivered to you. You obeyed the command to believe in Jesus Christ and the teachings of that command, and you've been set free by that, and so you're slaves of righteousness. You've agreed to serve righteousness with your lives. He's commending them for that. It's from the heart, not outward performance or outward uh, compliance with a certain man-made standard, but from the heart he commends that this conscious decision was made to serve God. You see, that's the difference between uh, the system of grace and the system of legalism. Legalism comes at you from the outside with its rules and makes you conform so that you look good. Grace works on you from the inside to liberate you and give you the motivation to make the right choices so that you do good. It's like the little boy that kept acting up in class, and so the teacher put him in the corner of the classroom and, and uh, sat him down in a chair in the corner as his punishment. The little boy would stand up. and She'd go over there and she'd say, no, you have to sit down. He'd stand up. No, you have to sit down. He'd stand up. No, you have to sit down. Finally, she goes over there and she says, now you sit down. And if you stand up again, I'm going to call your parents. The little boy's sitting there and he's stewing. He says, well, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's what legalism does. It forces us to be obedient on the outside, but on the inside, it hasn't changed a thing. Grace changes the heart in holiness, sanctification. So we're not compelled by laws anymore. But we serve a new master, and our only duty is to obey him. And we should submit to our new master, is what he says in verses 19 through 23. Look at, look, look at those passages. He says in 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And what he's, what's he saying, he's kind of apologizing, I think, for the slavery analogy, which is an unpleasant analogy, when he says that you're serving a new master as slaves. So he said, well, I'm just using a, a human illustration because it's so hard to understand in our own strength. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says in verses 19 through 20, to submit to righteousness is life. Present yourselves, he says, your members, uh, not to as slaves of uncleanness, uh, but as slaves of righteousness, which leads to holiness. See, un- uh, slaves of Sin and unrighteousness would lead to the effects of death, but being a slave of God would lead to holiness. Now, the word holiness is the same word from which we get our word sanctification. And so what he's talking about is uh, being, uh, and the word sanctification means to set apart, being set apart closer to God. Instead of being separated from God and the choices that we make, when we serve God, we're being separated closer to God towards him, sanctified. 
He speaks here of a quality of relationship. He calls it life, verse 22. He says, uh, since you're set free from sin uh, and have become slaves of God, you have the fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Now, at first impression, someone may say, well, is Paul saying to a Christian then that if they live a right, <clears throat> a righteous life of obedience, that they have everlasting life as uh, that that's the only way to have everlasting life? No. What he's saying is that when you are slaves of God and we experience the fruit of that holiness, separation to God, that brings us a greater measure of eternal life. And what is eternal life? It's not something that we just get once. It's something that we experience for a lifetime and into eternity. It is sharing in God's life. And the more we serve him, the more we obey him, the more we participate in his eternal divine life. So he's talking here about a quality of a relationship. And we need to get in our thinking, I think, a clear understanding of what eternal life is, because so many people believe that it's just something that you pick up when you pass out. It's just something that, you know, when you die, I've got my ticket, eternal life. That's not the way the Bible looks at it. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, it, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. New life, but that you might also live it abundantly. In John chapter 17, 3, um, Jesus says, and this is eternal life that you may know uh, God and the one that he has sent. So eternal life is defined there as a relationship with God. And the more we enjoy that relationship, the more of his life we enjoy. So everlasting life is not just something measured in time or quantity. It's measured in terms of relationship or quality. And I think that's very important to understand here. He's not saying that you'll earn salvation. He's not talking about death and hell. He's not talking about life as uh, salvation. He's talking about death as deadness and life as experiencing God's life himself. And then he says, so to submit to righteousness is life, but to submit to sin is death. He says that in verse 21. What he reminds them of how they used to act when they were unsaved. And he says, what, how is that fruitful for you to, to, uh, um, act like you used to or the, and do the things that you used to be ashamed of, of uh, which you're now ashamed? The end of that's death. That's just going to separate you from God in your experience. That's not going to be any fun. You're just going to bring shame and guilt and depression. He says the same thing in verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The word wages there is a word that comes from a military allotment <clears throat> as a pay for soldiers. And if, if, if we sin, then God, then we are paid in the wages of sin, which is death or separation from God. It pulls us further from God in our experience. Now you see, to be consistent then, we have to take verse 23 as applying to Christians. Now I know that we use verse 23 a lot in our evangelism when we're talking to non-Christians. Do I think that's wrong? No, I don't. Because I think he states it as a principle which applies to Christians and non-Christians. The wages of sin is death. If an unbeliever, because they've sinned, then they deserve eternal separation from God, eternal death. If a believer sins, then they earn temporal separation from God. In this life, in our experience, so that's what I think he's talking about. I think the primary interpretation is to Christians here and something that we shouldn't ignore. The wages of sin is death, my friends. If you choose to go your own way or do do things uh, in a sinful way, 
you're going to experience the same same things that an unsafe person experiences. The wages of sin is always death. That's to you and me, even though it applies to the unbeliever. But the gift of God is eternal life. When we walk towards righteousness and holiness and truth, God has given us his life to enjoy. He speaks of it as a gift here because it's not earned, but because it was given to us like life is given to a baby. And when we learn to walk in righteousness, we're learning to walk like a baby in that life that was given to him. That life has been planted in us. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's been given to us. Now he's encouraging us to walk in it in righteousness and holiness. I like to say to people, what's better than somebody giving you a million dollars? The only thing better than somebody giving you a million dollars is spending the million dollars, right? What's better than God giving you the gift of eternal life? You know what? Living it. Living the abundant life. It never was meant to be a static gift that we put in a bank vault, cash in when we die. It's something that we experience throughout this life that carries us in and determines our experience in the next life. That's what he means when he says eternal life or everlasting life in this context, in this passage. And so to to submit to sin is death and sin and shame and guilt. They say that Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire was really discouraged because Christians died joyfully when he killed them. And finally, one magistrate in his government said, well, if you really want to stop Christians, make them sin. You think Satan doesn't know that? Satan doesn't know. You think Satan doesn't know that if he can get you and me to sin, that our our Christian joy evaporates, our witness evaporates, our ministry evaporates. We start living like guilty sinners instead of like liberated saints. Satan knows that. And that's why we're enticed to sin. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. So to submit to righteousness is life. To submit to sin is death. So what are we left with? We have a new master. And that master is God. And we have to make a conscious decision to present ourselves to him. Why would we want to present ourselves to God? Well, he's been explaining for five and a half chapters why we should do that. Because when we were lost in sin and when we were as lost as could be in chapters one and two, when he looked at the human race and said, there's none that do good, no, not one. There's no one who fears God. They've all been condemned and you can't earn your salvation. But God has freely given us right his righteousness through Jesus Christ. And now we can have peace with God. And now we can have experiences, love and And now we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, chapter 6. When he says, present yourselves to God, he's assuming that you've read the five and a half chapters before. Why? Because you're so grateful for what he's done for you. Someone said that Christianity, the Christian life, should just be a great big thank you note to God. I like the way that is. What we do and how we live our lives is just a way of saying thank you to God. Not in order to be saved, but because he saved us. What a different motivation that is. It's the motivation that grace provides. The same motivation we find in chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Why does he say therefore? He wants you to look back at 11 chapters of blessings and then say, well, golly, the only thing I can do 
in response to that is, God, here, use me. Here's Here I am, body, mind, soul, heart, everything in this package called a body. I'm presenting it to you like a sacrifice on an altar. Do what you want to with me. That's the only appropriate response to grace. Grace gives us a new position, a new power, and a new motive to serve God. We were given his life as a gift. And we're to turn around and use it as a gift back to him. Not because we have to, but because we want to. So Paul is saying grace is not an excuse for sin because you're slaves of God. And if you choose to be a slave of God, then you obey him. And that leads to righteousness and truth and life. Well, that's what the biblical motivation for serving God is. It's the response to his grace. What are the alternatives if we don't do that? Well, a couple of ways that we can pervert that kind of message and motivation is we can fall into license. We've said that license is doing anything that you want to. In fact, it seems that the Corinthians had that kind of mindset. They were writing Paul a bunch of questions about different issues. And Paul had to write them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, and he quotes them, he says, all things are permissible for me. Some Bibles put that phrase in quotes, showing that Paul is not saying that of himself, but he's just reciting what they said to him. And he's answering their objection. So the Corinthians were saying, hey, I can do anything that I want. And it's in the context of sexual immorality in Roman, in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul's saying, well, in principle, I agree. He's saying all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And he goes on to explain that, you know, all things may be permissible, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. So, yeah, you might be able to do that. You might be free to take a drink, but can you take just one drink? Or will it bring you under its power and turn you into alcoholic? Yeah, you know, you may be able to look at that 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 woman in a bikini or something, but is it going to bring you under its power so that you can't put that magazine down, cause you to sin? All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial to me. So we can fall into license and say, well, I can do whatever I want to, but Paul is reminding there are consequences of that. And for the Christian, those consequences all lead back to that deadness that we had when we were separated from God positionally. Now, really, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. And we shouldn't think of Christianity as just absolute freedom. Absolute freedom is called anarchy. But really, there's nothing in the world that's absolutely free. Um, We say that the United States is a free country, right? The freest country in the world. But can I go up and punch you in the nose? No. Can I go 100 miles an hour through a school zone? No. There are laws in the United States. We're a free country. But there are things that govern our freedom. A fish is free as long as it stays in the water. A bird is free as long as he flies in the air. But if he tries to fly underwater, he's not free anymore. Bird tries, A fish tries to walk on the earth, he's not free anymore either. The freedom always has a context. And the context of freedom is within God's will. We're free, but we're free to do God's will. And a careless freedom is always a freedom that harms others. And the attitude, well, I can do whatever I want to because I'm under grace, is always going to hurt somebody. It starts by hurting yourself, and then it's going to hurt somebody else. I can drive 100 miles an hour through a school zone if I want to. Yeah, you can. You're probably going to kill a kid. I can drink alcohol anywhere with anywhere, anytime I want to. Well, maybe. 
You think that's right, but you know what? You might just drink in front of somebody that can't handle it. And they're going to think, boy, Charlie's spiritual. He can handle it, so I'm going to start doing that too, and he can't handle it. And he's going to end up penniless, drunk, without a family. So careless freedom harms others. It has to be a responsible freedom within God's will. Say, oh, but God will forgive me. It's another excuse you hear from those who practice license. I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. You said he already forgave my sins 2,000 years ago. So he, he knows what I'm going to do. He's already forgiven me. Well, that doesn't mean there's not consequences. I saw a cartoon one time of a lady. She was throwing china dishes down on the floor, breaking them into pieces. And she said, whoopee, I've discovered super glue. Yeah, you can glue the dishes back together. They're not going to be the same. It might be permissible, not beneficial. I remember when our second daughter broke her arm. Julie broke her arm and we had to get it in a cast and we came, she came home and we were all doting on her. Parents were, us as parents were bringing her food and make sure she was comfortable and all this. And her older sister says, I wish I had broken my arm. Just because you can fix it doesn't mean it's a good thing. There could be a scar there. There could be a deformity there. It's not a good thing. It's pain associated with doing our own thing. And perhaps the worst thing that license brings is when God lets us go our own way and we choose to go our own way, it hardens our heart against the things of God. It hardens our hearts so we're not sensitive to him and to others. So I think that grace gives us freedom, but it's a freedom not to do what we want to do, but to do what God wants us to do. We don't have to do what our old master said. When our old master snapped his fingers and said, okay, time to sin. We had to heed his voice. But now we can, we're no longer subservient to him. We can hear a new master and serve a new master. And that's why God has set us free. The other extreme is that we fall into legalism. And we've talked about legalism already. It's man-made rules for acceptance with God. Man-made rules for acceptance with God. So what legal the legalist does, he says, well, you're saved by grace, and maybe you're not under the law anymore, but you certainly got to do this and stop doing that and do this and stop doing that. And they give you a long list of do's and don'ts, how to dress, how to act, how to talk, how many times to come to church, how much money to give, all these different things. I think legalism comes from an attitude that fears the freedom that grace brings. because. A person under, remember, grace is risky and a person sees grace as a threatening thing because, boy, where are the rules? Where are the laws? People can do whatever they want. No. We're free, but we're free to serve God. And there are controls. Legalism seeks to control people. And so, excuse me, so it makes man's rules more important than God's word. Let me show you this diagram here because what I think the Bible's teaching us is that we're to live a life of liberty, but there is a constraint to that liberty. There is a way of controlling that liberty, keeping it from going to one excess of license or the other excess of legalism. And what is that balancing point in our liberty? It's love. When we love God with all our hearts and when we love one another, we'll always do what God wants us to do. I think it was Martin Luther who said, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want to do. 
Well, when you think about it, that's not bad theology. If we love God with all our hearts, we're going to do what he wants us to do. And we're going to love one another. And we're not going to steal. We're not going to cheat. We're not going to harm. We're not going to get angry with one another. We're going to love one another. Love God and do whatever you want to do. That's what Galatians 5.13 is saying. Now, I love this passage because it balances love and liberty so well. And I don't think I have it on the screen. So Galatians 5.13. For you, brothers, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, you have freedom, but don't use the freedom to serve yourself. That's license. Use it to love one another. Because when you do that, you fulfill all the law. That's why the life of grace is not scary. We love one another, and that controls our behavior. It's not anarchy. It's all controlled by love. Liberty balanced by love. Well, in Romans chapter 6, we see that when we appreciate God's grace, we won't abuse it. Our freedom and our liberty under grace came because of what God did for us. There was a great price paid to set us free. The United States is a free country because there were men who gave their lives, men who signed the Declaration of Independence, who lost their lives, who could lose all of their property, and they made a commitment. They paid a price. When we appreciate what God's grace has done for us and the price that God paid so that we can enjoy it as a free gift, we won't abuse it. We'll be living a life of gratitude and not arrogance. And living by grace takes faith. It takes faith because we're not told what to do moment by moment. Like the law made every decision for you in life almost. And the Soviet Union, likewise, would make every decision for its citizens. But then freedom says, no, now you can make choices. But it's worth the risk. Because maturity doesn't come any other way. We have to learn to discern between good and evil, Hebrews says. And that's what makes us mature. We can't make those decisions if somebody's making them for us. If somebody's telling us what to watch on television, how can I ever have a mature decision-making process in my own mind? You see? God wants us to make these decisions under his freedom according to his principles of grace. So it's worth the risk, but it takes faith. And then present yourselves to your master and serve him. That's the real message of chapter 6. Grace to serve means that we understand and appreciate his grace. We want to say thank you, God, by serving him with the rest of our lives. When I understood the message of grace, I didn't say to myself, now I can do whatever I want. I said, now, God, what is it you want me to do? And so here I am today. Shortly before the Civil War, there was a great abolitionist movement to abolish slavery in the United States. Of course, the North and South were divided. One of the pastors of the North named Richard Fairbanks was taking a trip to the South and he thought he would drop in on a slave market to see what was going on because he had heard of a horrendous scene of a slave market. And sure enough, when he came into the market, he saw that people were being bid and sold like property, like animals. And he was horrified. At one point in the bidding of these slaves, a beautiful young girl was put on the auction block. 
And the landowners began to bid for her and make lewd comments about what they would do to her when they bought her. And Pastor Richard Fairbanks found himself entering into the bidding until he outbid everyone and bought the girl. When he went up to claim her and the papers of ownership, she spit in his face and said, I will kill you the first chance I get. He took her by the chains and he led her outside. And when he got outside the door, he signed the papers and gave them to her and he said, you're free to go. And he turned and he walked away. He hadn't gone far when he heard the sound of steps running behind him and this young slave girl who had been a slave fell down before him and said, Master, I will serve you as long as I live. See, that's the response to grace. That's the response to liberty. It's not what I want to do. It's I'll serve you as long as I live. So would you offer yourself as a slave today? You said that grace brings a smile to our face and puts worship in our heart. It should also bring service to our lives. Have you made that commitment to say, God, I am so grateful to you today for understanding grace that I want to show you that I'm thankful and grateful and how I serve you with the rest of my life. Long time ago when I was a teenager, I was 16 years old, I got my ear pierced. It's still open today, by the way. I check it every now and then. It's still open. And back then it was a real radical thing to do. Not many people did that, but I was a real radical guy. Don't want to tell you. You don't want to get into all that. But not many people did that. Guys, anyway. And so that was a a point of pride and a point of rebellion with me that I wore proudly. Then I become a Christian and I had no cause to wear an earring or to boast of my rebellion. I took it out. I came across a passage one day in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 16 through 17. And it talks about a slave when he's set free by his master, if he wants to continue to serve his master, if he decides not to leave but to stay, put his earlobe against the, the post, the doorpost, and push an awl through it to show that he has consciously chosen to serve his master. And so this now is a reminder to me, not of rebellion, but of my conscious decision to serve the one who saved me. I wonder if you've made that conscious decision uh, with your life. That, God, I'm going to live for you because of all that you've done for me. Let me pray one more time with you. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of God. May it have been magnified today in our thinking and in our lives so that our hearts rejoice, so that it will fuel our worship privately and publicly tomorrow, so that it will motivate us to love you and serve you, and share you with others. Thank you for the opportunity to be with this group of people today who care about your message. And I pray that you would just weld it into our hearts. We might never forget it, take it with us always, and help others to understand it. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing on today, the worship service tomorrow. May your grace be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace@gracelife.org. at gracelife.org. See you next time.